0: On Thursday morning, the one-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by a pro-Trump mob trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election, just one year since that date, President Biden addressed the nation.
1: A president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again.
0: But exactly how much is the Biden administration doing to ensure that it never does? Democrats have criticized Biden's Justice Department, led by Attorney General Merrick Garland, for not going far enough to hold those responsible for the Capitol attacks accountable. Biden, meanwhile, in his speech Thursday, directly attacked former President Trump for his role in the events of that day.
1: The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle, because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our constitution.
0: So where do things stand a year later? How much has Biden's administration done to understand what led to the attacks and to prevent a major threat to our democracy from happening again? This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. with an overview of what the Biden administration has done to bring perpetrators of January 6th to justice at this point, what prosecutions have we seen?
2: So we've seen more than 700 people arrested. They are still pursuing at least 250. That number will rise too.
0: Devlin Barrett is a national security reporter for The Post whose work focuses on the Justice Department and law enforcement.
2: So you've seen what amounts to the largest criminal investigation in the FBI's history in terms of the number of defendants and suspects.
0: Are we seeing serious sentences for these people? Does it vary based on the judges issuing these sentences?
2: So we are seeing a lot of, in the early days of pleas, you know, there's been more than, I think, 200 pleas at this point. And a lot of them, frankly, are to misdemeanors. There has always been an issue of what investigators call the low-hanging fruit of January 6th, which is people who stormed into the building, who didn't personally engage in violent acts against police officers or others, but who did break the law by storming into the building and being part of the riot. And so you're seeing in the early days of the pleas, a lot of uh, misdemeanor pleas and a lot of short sentences. Merrick Garland, the attorney general in his speech, tried to caution people that, you know, that's kind of what the early stages of prosecutions look like. In the
3: first months of the investigation, approximately 145 defendants pled guilty to misdemeanors, mostly defendants who did not cause injury or damage. Such pleas reflect the facts of those cases and the defendants' acceptance of responsibility, and they help conserve both judicial and prosecutorial resources so that attention can properly focus on the more serious perpetrators. In complex cases, Initial charges are often less severe than later charged offenses. This is purposeful as investigators methodically collect and sift through more evidence.
2: The low level actors get sentenced to small amounts of punishment, but that doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen to the more serious actors who still have to decide to either go to trial or
3: plead guilty. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead.
2: To be honest, I think the public discussion has actually shifted away from the rioters themselves. And there's sort of this ongoing political debate about what price should be paid by the folks who encouraged or, as some people say, the fire created the conditions for those rioters. And that's, that's what a lot of the political debate has been about in the last month or so.
0: Right. Democrats and and many others on the left have expressed this frustration with the Justice Department, with Attorney General Garland, saying that they're not really going far enough in their efforts to hold the people sort of at the top of this accountable. So has that criticism been met with any action? Are there plans to expand who's held accountable?
2: Well, from the very beginning, from January 7th, in fact, DOJ officials have said, we are going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. We're going to look at actors, anyone who is involved in this at any level, will be looked at and seen if they deserve charges. To be honest, I think part of the criticism from the left is because a year into this, a lot of folks would like to see those kind of charges brought against some of those figures. Uh, I will tell you, having covered federal law enforcement for a long time, investigations are almost always slower than the public would like them to be. And I certainly think that's true in this case, in part, because there are just so many defendants that have to be dealt with.
0: That reminds me of the years it took Robert Mueller to conduct his investigation, for example.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And he was, you know, by federal standards, he was racing. People, I think, don't think of it that way now. But it's really true. That was, by many federal standards, that was very fast. And the other, look, the other issue is, and it's not one that a lot of people want to hear, is that there are all gradations of involvement in what happened on January 6th. And there is not a ton of case law that supports the notion that if a politician gives a speech in the hours before a riot and says things like, you need to go fight or you need to stand up for yourselves and tell Congress they can't do this, you know, the case law doesn't actually support making charges based on that. So I think legally there is a higher bar here than some folks realize or want to see. And that, that's another challenge facing this whole process.
0: You bring up Merrick Garland's speech. He spoke to the country on Wednesday about the progress that he's made in this investigation. Were you surprised by anything you heard? Do you think that his claims that he is making the progress that he is he's expected to make hold up?
2: You know, I think Merrick Garland said a lot of the things that attorney generals have said about high-profile cases for decades. I think a lot of that stuff was, frankly, standard. I think what's interesting about this discussion and him saying it now is he's clearly trying to sort of pacify and calm some of his critics uh, and ask for patience. But I also think people are going to read what they want to in Garland's speech because there's enough there that if you want to believe he's being cautious, you can you can find sentences that make you think that. If you want to believe he's being aggressive, same thing. I'll be honest. I actually, as, as a Justice Department reporter, I was actually struck by something he focused on at the end of his speech, which really struck me as quite different from what I've seen from a lot of attorneys general. And he spent a long time talking about, you know, for lack of a better word, the danger of the breakdown of civil order. And he talked about threats at schools, threats at on airlines, threats to election officials.
3: Adhering to the department's longstanding norms is essential to our work in defending our democracy, particularly at a time when we are confronting a rise in violence and unlawful threats of violence in our shared public spaces and directed at those who serve the public. We have all seen that Americans who serve and interact with the public at every level, many of whom make our democracy work every day, have been unlawfully targeted with threats of violence and actual violence. Across the country, election officials and election workers airline flight crews, school personnel, journalists, local elected officials, U.S. senators and representatives, and judges, prosecutors, and police officers have been threatened and or attacked. What
2: his speech seemed to be designed to say is that the Justice Department is not going to solve every problem in society. That's not what it's built to do. It's built to prosecute people who commit crimes. And he seemed to be urging citizens, and to some degree elected officials, to take some responsibility themselves for whether democracy uh, rises or falls. I think one of the more histrionic sentiments I've seen expressed in the last few days is that democracy is going to live or die based on what Garland's Justice Department does. I think Garland is politely pushing back on that notion that it's all up to him and only him.
3: As employees of the nation's largest law enforcement, agency, each of us understands that we have an obligation to protect our citizens from violence and fear of violence, and we will continue to do our part to provide that protection. But the Justice Department cannot do it alone. The responsibility to bring an end to violence and threats of violence against those who serve the public is one that all Americans share. Such conduct disrupts the peace of our public spaces and undermines our democracy. We are all Americans. We must protect each other. I
2: think that's an interesting argument for an attorney general to make even obliquely. And that's, to me, what stood out the most.
0: Yeah, and to your point, part of sort of preventing this from happening again is the Biden administration assessing what went wrong. And so the White House found that the insurrection got so bad in part because the lack of high-level intelligence sharing. It seems similar, as I remember, to some of the 9-11 sort of post-analysis about a lack of of high-level intelligence sharing. So what do we know about what went wrong here?
2: So one is that there were lots of intelligence reports in warning signs in the intelligence community with the FBI, with the Homeland Security Department, and other places that suggested something quite bad might happen on January 6th. Those were shared, but they were shared at a low level. And I think any time you're dealing with multiple agencies sharing information, sharing intelligence, if it doesn't get shared on a high level, it often doesn't get taken very seriously. And I think what you see over the arc of, let's say, December, the month leading up to January 6th, is that FBI officials and and Capitol Police officials and others were getting these kinds of red flags but didn't really believe them. And so what happens on January 6th is that the Capitol Police have nothing like the capacity and the personnel they need to fend off a mob of thousands of people uh, pushing and beating them down. And I think those are the two main areas of failure. And what was described to us and what we reported is that the Biden administration senior officials believe that there was basically a lack of high level information sharing and a failure to anticipate how badly that day could go. And those two things seem to be their main takeaways from it. And they're trying to do things now that would prevent those kind of missteps from happening again.
0: Yeah, that was my next question to you. Have we seen those steps? What what does it look like to prevent that from happening again?
2: So for one thing, you know, DHS officials and others have said they are sharing intelligence differently now than they were before January 6th. I think a lot of stuff that was dismissed mostly because it was on social media and therefore was not taken very seriously, there's more thought put into threats posted on social media, especially volume of threats posted on social media now than there was then. Second, the National Security Council basically has a weekly discussion with all the federal law enforcement agencies that have a role in protecting Washington, D.C., and they basically require higher-level officials to talk to each other, to tell them what they're seeing, to talk about what protests or or demonstrations might be coming down the pike in the next week or so. And it basically forces high-level officials to have a weekly conversation about these issues so that If and when one of them starts to look particularly ominous, they're already talking to each other and they're already sharing information at a high level, not just at a low level.
1: In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You mentioned some of the efforts to combat misinformation and disinformation on social media. A lot of, it seems to me, what we've seen since, since that day has been actions taken by private companies to, you know, for example, remove Donald Trump from Twitter, remove Marjorie Taylor Greene from Twitter, um, individual companies sort of deciding where to draw the line. And I'm curious if we've seen the same kind of action or, or that high-level action from the Biden administration at this point or any other efforts to combat misinformation and disinformation.
2: Well, I, I think that is a hard... Not to crack for both the government and the companies themselves. And I think Biden personally has been critical of, for example, Facebook at times. And the companies have said they are going to be more aggressive to combat misinformation. Uh, You know, I think there's a lot of data out there that suggests that negative interactions and outrage actually create more interactions on social media. And so misinformation seems to fly around the world in a way that facts often don't. So I think that's hard to do. And it's not clear to me that there's a lot of will or even a way to do that particularly well yet.
0: So we've talked a lot about the Justice Department. I want to just quickly talk about what's happening in Congress. The House Select Committee is investigating January 6th. Can you talk about where that investigation stands and how it relates to the work of the Justice Department?
2: It's a very interesting dance going on between the committee and the Justice Department because some folks on the committee have really sort of pushed out the notion that they may be making a number of criminal referrals to the Justice Department. And a criminal referral is essentially the committee in Congress saying, you, Justice Department, should go investigate whether this person should be prosecuted for committing this crime. Again, I I think that speaks to a level of frustration on the left that political figures close or involved in either the rally or the riot have not been charged with crimes related to that yet. But I'll be honest, I think I have a little bit of old reporter skepticism that the committee is going to open doors for criminal prosecutions that the DOJ can't open themselves. I do think what's really important about the committee is, you know, after 9-11, there was a bipartisan commission that really tried to create a common understanding of the facts that led up to 9-11. I do think where the committee can and is going to try to be extremely valuable is to lay out as clear a telling of what happened as possible even in the highly partisan atmosphere that is Washington, D.C., and that is Congress. That would itself would be, I think, a very valuable exercise for some part of government to do.
0: And how much does that sort of laying out of the timeline, how much does that affect the work at the Justice Department? Can they use that to stem other investigations?
2: Well, I mean, look, I think that's the hope of some folks who would like to see more senior and public officials charged. I think That may ultimately be a kind of wishful thinking. I think the more likely scenario and probably more practical scenario is that the Justice Department is going to charge the people for whom they have, you know, provable cases of crimes. And the committee may end up describing a lot of behavior that doesn't rise to the level of crimes, but is still either bad or important for history to record. You know, one of the things I think that sometimes gets lost in political discussions of criminal investigations is that not everything that's bad is a crime. And there has to be a way for the system, particularly in a political system, to deal with bad behavior that doesn't rise to the level of a chargeable crime.
0: You've just summarized the thesis of this podcast. (laughs) Great. That's it right there.
2: (laughs) Great. I, I mean, look, I think I think that part is super important. And I'll give you one sort of nerdy example there's a lot of debate about, you know, who is part of the coup, right? That's a big part of the discussion. And that's a really important question for the Justice Department to answer and for the committee to answer. But what people mean by the coup isn't necessarily the same thing. Some people mean the riot, the physical violent attack on Congress. Some people include the coup to also mean trying to get Republicans to vote to not certify the results. That is a very different thing. I think the committee might end up having a lot to say on that subject. But I think trying to argue that a vote on the floor of Congress is a criminal act, I think is going to be a big, big lift. And I'm not sure that DOJ wants to do that or can do that or will do that. But it would be good, I think, for some part of the government to explore the notion of what does it mean if dozens of lawmakers vote on the floor of the House to just toss out Election results. Again, that sounds pretty bad. Is it a crime? I think that's a very different question.
0: And same goes for the people who are close to the president, to President Trump and and President Trump himself, right? Trying to assess where this line between a potential crime or not exists. And on that note, is there precedent for a criminal referral against a president or a former president in this case?
2: Boy, not that I'm aware of. And, you know, there's a lot of lawyers in D.C., and I've seen a lot of them offer different theories as to how you could charge him depending on what the facts are, how it's impossible to charge him no matter what the facts are. I think one of the things I think about as a Justice Department reporter is just has there ever been a case like that? Because that's how a lot of decisions get made at the Justice Department. And I can't find or think of a case like that. And I think, frankly, if there was a case like that, all the lawyers who would like to see it happen would have found it and trumpeted from the skies at this point. The other thing to keep in mind in all this process is Merrick Garland is a former appeals court judge. Appeals court judges are pretty cautious by nature. And I think he definitely has that mindset generally in life and as the attorney general. So I would be surprised if Merrick Garland decides to make some really novel and hugely consequential interpretations of law that have never been seen before. That would be a big lift for him, and that would, I think, cut against some of his instincts. doesn't mean it can't happen because, obviously, a lot of this is what people sometimes call uncharted territory.
0: Or unprecedented times. (laughs) Yes. So we've talked about what the Justice Department has done so far, what Biden has done, what Congress has done. So my question to you is, taking all of this together a year out, are we where you would expect us to be in holding people accountable for the events of that day?
2: So— I think we roughly are. I think there are a few things about where we are that surprise me uh, in terms of the investigation. And that's one of the things, as a reporter, I find a little strange about the conversation about why aren't people around Trump, more people around Trump being charged is, you know, the leader of the Oath Keeper, Stuart Rhodes, was on the steps outside the Capitol building before and after the riot. He was talking to people who have been charged criminally. And he has not been charged with anything. Those are the kind of decisions that I thought we would probably have by now, and we seem to not have those decisions being made. And that's what I'm very curious about because how you decide to ultimately charge the Oath Keepers as a group and as individuals, I think, will say a great deal about how high up you, you know, think this goes or doesn't go.
1: You can't obey the law only when it's convenient. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies. Those who stormed this capital, and those who instigated and incited and those who called on them to do so held a dagger at the throat of America and American democracy.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Charlotte Freeland and Arjun Singh, with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon.